0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to season four of the Global Careers Calls podcast from the University of London Career Service. Listen into stimulating career conversations between a member of our team and professionals working in a range of sectors based across the globe. This season's focus is the future of work, so let's listen into our Global Careers Call.
1: Research from the World Economic Forum indicates that one billion people must be upskilled by 2030 transforming every employee into a lifelong learner. Join me, Tanyal Kazim, for this Global Careers Calls episode, all about skills, upskilling and reskilling in the future of work context. In part one of our focus on the topic of skills, we'll hear from the views and perspectives of two guests. Yehan Wijasinghe is a final year undergraduate student in BSc Economics and Management. Gehan is based in Sri Lanka, studying a distance degree at the University of London. Curious about what his future career looks like and the skills he might need, Gehan co-hosts alongside me to provide the career starter perspective. Next up is Carlos Russell, University of London alumni in BSc Computing and Information Systems. From Argentina, but working in Mexico at the time of our call, Carlos has over 30 years of work experience in technology at global management consulting firms Primarily with a financial services focus, Carlos brings a multi-industry perspective, with extensive involvement in graduate recruitment. There's a lot of value in this, so perhaps listen with a pen and paper in hand. We hope you enjoy the conversation. In the modern labour market, Carlos Gehan we're drawn to this idea of upskilling and reskilling. Now, this is a terminology that is relatively new and it's used to describe what was simply once known as training. The World Economic Forum report suggests that 40% of core skills in the average job is going to transform in the next five years. So with this in mind, there's quite an emphasis in the workplace on the importance of skills and lifelong career learning So if we take upskilling to be the process of learning new skills to improve your current job and reskilling as the process of learning new skills to change your career, I'm really interested in the role that skills have both played in your respective career journeys so far. So starting with you, Carlos, as someone who's later in their career, you mentioned this is your 33rd year of work. What is your stance on skills? Are upskilling and reskilling a focus for you, or is it something you don't get to prioritize enough now? Um, I think you have no choice
2: but to keep evolving
1: your skill set.
2: Um, when I started in the in the early nineties, it it was all about content. So I'm a technology professional. So from that perspective, I had to learn everything I could, otherwise I wouldn't be attractive to the marketplace. Um, you get credentialized at that stage, but what you know, what you bring us, hard skills primarily. And I think, yeah. I think we've evolved from that. We, 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 as a, you know, different, different people and different businesses identified that that was okay early on in the '90s when we were still, you know, emerging into the internet age. Let's put it that mm. way. Uh, but nowadays, is about connecting with people in a way so the, mm. the, the, the type of skill set that you need to bring onto the table it's more around a more all-rounded uh, mm. capability structure that can you know you have the technical content but you are a human being that mm. you can connect you can have a conversation you can understand what's being said and you can you can have critical thinking to bring to the table uh, as opposed to just focus blindfolded yeah. to, to, to do the task, right? So are you a challenger to the status cure, or are you just following orders? Um, and I think what we are you know in terms of my personal journey, um, I was more on the content side early on, and then I had to you know develop more leadership skills. Because mm-hmm. as you move on in the career, or, you know, first decade, second decade, third decade, you have to be able to be credible in um, conversations with more senior managers, senior executives. But mm-hmm. more, more importantly, about what you bring to the table as a, as a leader, as, mm-hmm. as somebody that, that a team will follow, not blindly, but, but that you can create high performance teams uh, and make them sustainable so the skilling the upskilling and reskilling for me personally was more around how can i engage more from a leadership angle mm-hmm. rather than just the technical technology content or the technical financial services content and currently i'm i'm a compliance officer more than anything so i need to bring ethics and um and that sort of uh, w- which sounds like a philosophical discussion but is really <laughs> important in this um In business contexts around the world, so um, what I I think in in a nutshell is, uh, you start content based, you continue, you know, Mm. on a a leadership uh, curve uh, uh, and journey in a way, and uh, and then and then it's more around how do you engage with people, with teams, with senior management, with board of directors. Um, It it, it depends on your role and your career, but but really is about how. How can you bring a better offering than just the content let's put it that way so the challenge is to build time on your uh, on your schedule to be able to acquire those skills because you can you can watch and learn but sometimes you need a hard look and that you need to allow for time for that reflection to happen and
1: shifting your behaviors because it's behavior change that you need yes. You've made some really salient points in that opening statement, Carlos, and already we have the distinction between, you know, the technical hard skills you might need to develop early in your career, but not neglecting the the people skills, as you say, you had to develop into a leader. So this idea of soft and hard skills is something we'll get onto, but I just want to bring in the student perspective with Gehan, who's on the call as well. So Gehan... To, to bring in your voice as a student and also somebody based in the eastern part of the world, I want to understand how is this idea of upskilling and reskilling perceived from, from where you are? What is the messaging like from the local labour market there? Is it something that's
3: emphasised early? Hi, Daniel. Thank you for the question. So from a local labor market standpoint, there's a strong message highlighting the significance of upskilling and reskilling. Organizations and employers Mm. often prioritize candidates who demonstrate a willingness to adapt and being coachable, I would say. So we have heard of the famous Japanese proverb Kaizen, which means continuous learning. Essentially, employees who are embedded with this quality truly stand out. And this emphasis on upskilling is particularly evident in sector sectors such as IT, finance, or where it's common, where everything is just rapidly developing and, you know, globalizing. So moreover, the government and numerous educational institutes in Sri Lanka actively promote and support this encouraging mm-hmm. upskilling and reskilling initiatives. They offer various training programs, workshops, and certifications that empower these individuals to acquire new competencies and try to bridge this skills gap between them. So I would say overall in Sri Lanka, which typically leans towards an Asian culture, like you mentioned from an Eastern perspective, right. um, upskilling and reskilling are seen as vital strategies for professional growth and staying competitive in the global market. In terms of messaging from the local labor market, it kind of emphasizes on the importance of continuously upgrading Swan skills, like I mentioned before. Uh, so as demand seems to increase these new opportunities comes as well in the markets. So it's all about you, whether you're kind of willing to take up this task and whether you opt for it. So as a student, I personally understand the value of upskilling and reskilling, and I actively seek opportunities to enhance my own knowledge and develop these new skills, whether it be through online courses or other means, um, that aligns with the benefit and demands of the job market. I believe that investing in continuous learning is not only important for securing employment, but also for long-term career success. So, yeah.
1: Mm. Thank you for that, Gehan. Um, I love that reference to Kaizen as well. Uh, so I want to move on to, I mean, the, the main topic really is, is, is what are these skills really? And uh, Carlos, you, you mentioned a few earlier. I'd like to ask you as someone who's, who's been involved in graduate recruitment extensively as part of their, their career and that whole responsibility of, of recruiting teams in different workplaces. What would you say are the skills, both hard and soft, that are in high demand right now as a list?
2: Yeah, the the skill set that you look for in interviewing candidates, somebody to be academically sound, um, you know, have, have good grades, but also what have you been doing on top of it, right? So... Uh, it, it this is about your background do you engage in in social work have you done the gap yeah travel around have you learned about your you know your environment um but also at, at the you know at the junior level you know junior higher process you would do probing questions on the back of that so the skill set that you were looking at is primarily how do you react to conflict how mm-hmm. do you react would you you know, uh, a typical question was, you know, tell me about a mistake that you've made. Do you own up to it? It's about behavior, right? What's your behavior? Would you just, you know, place it under the rug and say it was somebody else's fault? Or would you own up, right? And those kinds of things, they're the, the soft skills that you're probing uh, in the interviewing process. But but also that means that you expect somebody to have empathy, to understand the other Point of view, you would you would test the listening skills. Have you identified what I was talking about to <laughs> you? And so the probing, the feedback of of that session would, you know, I would be able to tell if somebody was extremely nervous that they shut down, <laughs> or uh, I, I help them go through that because interviews is a stressful process, particularly when you're starting up. So you need to build your courage. And, and bring out um, everything <laughs> everything to the fore uh, you know the good uh, and the weak points because if everything looks okay in paper, you know that brings me into what what's what's the balance? So nobody is top performing in everything. Uh, so what are you, what are you trying to so what what are you trying to show me? and also um, are we clear that it's not just a skill set that I'm buying? So I'm not mm. recruiting a skill. I'm recruiting a human being. Um, mm. So I would probe on potential leadership uh, yeah. question, probing questions. For example, you know, would if you had two people uh, to work with you on a particular piece of work, how would you ensure that everyone is doing what's needed? Simple, you know, n- nothing too. You know, it's not technical. Uh, yeah. What I'm probing on a great recruitment. How would you think of yourself as a leader? Uh, and that's not. The usual script, so I will have the, the usual script, but I would add on my own color. It's interesting when you're recruiting to understand the perception of people about what your business does. So, you asked uh, a, a potential recruit, uh, what do you know about my business? And I would expect them to be able to explain mm. it. And maybe that gives me the ability to correct them and the guide them into what's the best role to to what they bring to the table. Because graduate recruitment has to be a, back, a blanket, you know, you get a yeah. swarm of people coming at the same time, hundreds of people on the intake every year. Um, so so where, where do you find the right fit? Um, and it's a combination of both the, the soft and hard skills. Um, yeah. you know, do you need an engaging personality all the time? Um, not necessarily. I need people that, you know, they have very good math skills or statistical hmm. skills. Um, and they will struggle sometimes, uh, I'm not generalizing and doing a stereotype, it's just that, you know, people that have, you know, the right brain more developed than the left, they would, yeah. you know, sometimes struggle with, uh, with the human interaction at the level that's expected. So you would yeah. expect somebody with uh, data analysis skills to yeah. provide a very good insight on what's going on or with the data. But then if they're not able to explain it properly in conceptual clear terms, then you know uh, that, that's an issue. You need somebody yes. to do the translation. And that's where teamwork comes in, both on the technical and, uh, and the, so the hard and the soft skills of teams. That's when you place the right team around it, when you're delivering a, a consulting engagement. So you need that diversity of skill sets, of background to make it attractive because clients will be expecting that, but also yeah. because that makes it more interesting because you bring different perspectives. So that's what you look for. You're, you're thinking, how would it fit? What type of fit would this person be in a particular stressful en- engagement, right? And where would you place them? So if you don't take the time to do that when you are interviewing, then you're missing the point. You know, you, you're yeah. just going through, well, I need 100 people. Right, uh, but I, I yeah, I, I would encourage everyone doing interviews to follow those uh, sort of tips and techniques to identify mm. the fit in the role and within a team.
1: Before we move on, um, it's really interesting. You've 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 really um, articulated for our audience the distinction between the, the soft and the hard skills. It very much depends on the role, of course. But as someone who's worked in a client-facing environment, it does make sense that a lot of the the skills you are assessing in an interview are reflective of the actual day-to-day job you're doing. And the nuances of communication as well. Uh, you've really articulated, like, are you actually listening? And then how do you actually ingest what is being heard? There's a There's a fine art to communication, which is very much interlinked with teamwork, as you've mentioned, and leadership.
3: So Carlos, thank you for that insightful uh, view of your end. So you mentioned that humans in essentially they go beyond technical skills, right? So there you brought in the element of empathy and what, how you treat a human is kind of different, how you treat other means, right? So they are essentially not an economic animal. Some people refer to them as an economic animal I have seen, but in your personal opinion, the skill of emotional intelligence is critical in the workplace be it an interview or client presentation, the ability to create a human connection stands firm in an increasingly technological world. So as someone who has worked in management consultancy and dealing with a diverse viewpoints and teams, in what way would you use emotional intelligence at work and how do we essentially develop this skill?
2: Right. So I I had a different... Different levels of maturity in acknowledging that emotional intelligence was important because yeah. when I started out it was all about why well, can I bring in terms of content of experience of solid technical advice right uh, and that made me extremely credible but extremely lonely because I would be the expert that will be brought in to explain a difficult thing I was very good at translating technology complexities into business terms but then I was, you know, kind of what what are these psychology thing coming in from left field, telling me about self awareness on self management uh, or, or social awareness. So I was, you know, I, I was a bit skeptical uh, from, from 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 the from the go. But then, through my experience and journey, I found it extremely fundamental. If I if I do not have the ability to understand. How I impact on somebody else's emotions, it's yeah. very difficult that I can be their leader, right? Because I'm just blindfolded uh, and pointing to a direction to go and not looking back if anyone is following or not. So, how do you engage? Yeah. If you do not understand how you uh, impact somebody else uh, and reflect on, you know, are you talking the right way? Are you reading the room properly? Are you you know the relationship management aspect as well? Um, is the audience understanding how you're saying? Do you need to change your uh, the way that you're you're conveying a message? Um, then also that that social awareness part of emotional intelligence. So what's yes. what's going on in the room, but in the context of the community or, or the wider agenda? in terms of social interaction, am I, am I asking somebody to be brutal in a context that does not allow brutality, right? So sure. if if we're talking about financial services, you know, investment investment management or, or, or trade management, the flaws, they're brutal. They're, they're all about money. So am I bringing a soft approach to, to engaging with those people? No, you engage with them through their wallet first. You know, if you don't, if you don't do this, you won't, find a, you, you won't get the big bonus. And then you say, well, to deal with that conflict, <laughs> let's bring a team to analyze what's going on in your leadership style with your team to make it a high-performance team. Let's put it that way. But um, um, the point on banking is emotional intelligence is crucial leadership skill that you need uh, mm. in, in the current context of business. If you're not aware of your impact, and how you're you know we call it, it, it there's a translation of the the emotional salary uh, as well as a, the the wallet salary right um uh, so what are you bringing are, are you recognizing success hmm. right or are you only focus on the next kill no. to take over uh because that's that's the emotional thing you know somebody needs an an emotional reward as well well done right that was great um Providing timely feedback is part of, you know, um, dealing with the emotional and intelligence part. You understand that somebody needs feedback so they can shift their behavior. So I wouldn't regard that as very important when I was starting up. It was more around: Do they know? Do I know my stuff? Yes. Can I deliver the message? Yes. Do I care how somebody else might be receiving the expert opinion to their face? <laughs> And, uh, you know, providing evidence of a huge technical mistake in front of everyone, I wouldn't care because I was just doing my technical job. So as a leader, you start to pick up those nuances about how to flex your style, reading the room, seeing, Mm -hmm. understanding who's there. Stakeholder management is very important when you're doing client-facing work, but also when you're on the other side of the table and you're leading a, a strong performing team. So I think the emotional intelligence part is crucial uh, yes. for leadership uh, management.
3: Thank you, Carlos, for that. And you actually touch base on like self-actualization as well. So in terms of uh, you know, I think a small theory concept we learned in our business thing is a Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where things actually go above and beyond just you know technical yeah. aspect of things. And also you mentioned the tone and clarity on how we convey the message is kind of important as well because uh, messages are often than not get misinterpreted in the workplace. So how you kind of deliver it may kind of respond to how you kind of can achieve that outcome in a more favorable manner.
1: We're really honing in on this idea of communication. Um, and I guess for people listening, they'll be at different stages in terms of their level of comfort with this, this idea. So I guess a practical way you can practice in a low stakes situation is just in front of the mirror or with a friend and um, get them to feedback on how they they might be receiving you or, or, or how you might be um, receiving them as i was looking uh, into the research for this episode um, i came across a report that looks at the top workplace skills to hone by 2030 and carlos you mentioned this already in, in terms of conflict resolution but resilience, stress tolerance and flexibility uh, is a skill that's ranked high in in this list. And this is quite a tricky one for people because how can you practice resilience? How can you get better at being resilience, uh, resilient? So um, I would like to just discuss this briefly. But firstly, Gahan, um, as a student and someone at the start of their career, have you had to be resilient? Um, what role does it play in your your studies or work.
3: Thank you. And to answer your question, Tanya, resilience has definitely played a crucial role in both my academics and professional life. So I'm a firm believer that actions do speak louder than words. Uh, Just to give you a small example, working as a full-time employee uh, at a top-tier local investment bank while balancing my degree was definitely a challenge for me. So there were tough days at the job where, you know, work kind of clashed with lecture schedules and whatnot. So it was during those times, I kind of had to pick myself up and pick up the pace and become more comfortable in taking on more responsibility. So in my opinion, it's, I would say my being resilient and my perseverance kind of played a major role in overcoming these challenges. So I'd like to share a, a famous quote that kind of resonated with me as well. Uh, so it, it is that if it's easy, everyone would do it. But because it's tough, only a few can do it. So sure. it's kind of like applying those principles, right? So for what it's worth, sacrificing a bit of comfort in your yes. life would have yes. a great deal of joy, I would say. And uh, this is true for m- most aspects in our life. So if you truly believe in something, anything is possible, right? So therefore, in terms of resilience, I would say that, you know, living a life Knowing that you gave your 100%, the results will eventually follow.
1: I love that, Jehan And Carlos, uh, so you've you've worked through uh, the 2008 financial crisis. And so um, you could argue that um, you have firsthand experience of both being resilient and building resilience of uh, the clients you work for. So just reflecting on this period and with the very real risk that we could go into a similar cycle at some point in the future, what tips do you have for people in terms of building their resilience and practical ways this can be done uh, and for people thinking about managing a setback or coming back from a failure?
2: Mm Mm-hmm right so let's clarify a thing in my timeline in my professional timeline is that the 2008 was a global crisis but i already had a a regional crisis in argentina before i I, I was a management consulting in the uk so i already knew what a full-on you know financial crisis looked like from a client facing perspective and um and resilient resiliency let's put it that way is about dealing with failure and taking the opportunities that failure brings to the fore. So, for, and that's my experience. Because if you get bogged down, then you are just lost in the in the mist, right? You don't know where to go. You, you know, essentially make the wrong calls everywhere. From a technical, from a from a, from a business, from hmm. management style, you are on the stress mode. And uh, if you do not know how to hold it down and, and take charge in the right way, and do uh, sometimes the hard work and the innovative work on the back of that, then uh, you are a victim, not a leader. So, um, so having said that, two thousand and eight was very disruptive. It, it, you know, ended careers, yeah. uh, ended companies altogether. Uh, you know, uh, and, and and all that was extremely harsh. Um, but that meant that people had to reinvent. And uh, that's the risk versus opportunity discussion that financial services yeah. is, is is every day's bread and butter. But um, but 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 yeah. can you train that? You had to live through a crisis uh, to to come out of it better. So we live through pandemic. Have we come out better? Um, yeah. Have we come out more resilient? Probably. Um, but but again uh, we had to move let, let's talk about the the impact we had to move into a full virtual management mode right for for many industries that couldn't reach their workplace um uh, so we had to deal with uh you know the, the the delicate life and work balance by working from home or working remotely and not you know having to deal with all of that that brings resiliency skills to the fore very quickly, right? Yeah. So we were very successful in dealing with that, in spite of all the craziness that was in, particularly in the early onset of the COVID pandemic. So, uh, so, so, I think you can live yeah. through crises and learn how to deal with conflict. Mm. Uh, but it's a very personal journey. Um, from my my perspective, is it depends where. Where you are, and, uh, and how it hits you, and how you react to that hit. So, I, I don't, yeah. I don't think there's a formula of dealing, uh, you know, with, with 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 crises that can apply to each and every one in the same yeah. pattern. You can get the big broad brush uh, viewpoints, but not. No, no, I think it's more of a personal journey.
1: This is really insightful for people to. I guess the practical takeaway is recognizing in your everyday life, uh, moments where you've had to be resilient or build a level of resilience. And the pandemic is something we've all uh, been through. Um, And um, it's just about realizing the experience people have and being able to pull that out. And um, so that's really insightful from you both. Thank you.
3: So Carlos, uh, you mentioned that in terms of resilience, it definitely played a crucial role and it was much needed in terms of the lockdown and, you know, reskilling and uh kind of building that block and overcoming that ball, right? So I'm just gonna take you to the spot and move on to technology currently because in terms of future of work, we can see how advanced technology has become and what an integral part it plays in our day-to-day lives. So in terms of like the skills landscape, just pulling up a small fact, the organization of economic cooperation and development kind of predicted that technology will essentially transform transform 1.1 billion jobs over the next decade. So with the emergence of this new technology, such as artificial intelligence, many are concerned about the impacts on the job market. What are essentially some of the challenges and how can we work with technology to future-proof our careers?
2: Right. So uh, we had a journey of technology disruption over the last 25, 30 years so we had the internet we had cloud for example from a technical perspective that was very disruptive you you, you ended up you know sending technical hardware to uh to 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 and virtualize it to the cloud that was you know very disruptive from a technology but now we have artificial mm-hmm. intelligence big data analytics and um machine learning uh, internet of things uh, you know loads of things sensors you know all, all that stuff um, so from a technical skills perspective um, it's not just the job that is going so the job marketplace is going to affect it I think it's everyday's life um, and, and I think it's very exciting because we will be doing things better with the assistance of AI so I will become a better coder. I will become a better so provided I train it properly right so there's there's an element of where you build uh, uh, the the uh, the AI training cycle in in a bad way so it, you know garbage in garbage out but but if you look at what the large language models are bringing to the fore the chat gpts and all that um, they are they're, they're very powerful they're very evolved parrots at the moment but really <laughs> uh, it does not yet replace human human thinking so there's a lot of doomsayers on, on on that side does it need to be regulated or not i think that's a separate discussion i think it's important but the for, from a from a job opportunity perspective there's loads of opportunities coming into training ai of working with a with a, a i think microsoft calls it the co pilot so you've got an ai that's co-piloting with you getting you better at writing reports or providing data insights, uh, getting better code. Um, so I think the, the the upskilling and reskilling we've been talking about is just you know part of that journey. Um, hmm. Will jobs be replaced by AI? Uh, will they get all killed by terminators? I don't think so. I think what we're getting is that, um, particularly the ones with more experience, we need to bring that into um, our, our type of work. So thinking about what are the opportunities to improve people's lives with AI, big data and uh, and analytics rather than worrying that. So let's change the job uh, so that there is more opportunities rather than shrink it. That would be my point.
1: Carlos, I just want to chip in uh, quickly. So we've talked a lot about the types of skills and you've just touched upon there the sort of technologies that we should be um, mindful of emerging and emerged Um, so I'm trying to think about you know those who are perhaps looking to re-enter the workforce after a long career break they've come back to this world with chat GPT AI all these sort of technologies that didn't exactly exist uh, back when they were in work so to those people and thinking about multi-generational workforce needs where should people start uh, in terms of areas to to develop their skills in sure
2: so the people view is is huge right but um let's talk about the tech so from a technology perspective if you're skilled in coding uh then you can you can get really up to up to scratch with the new coding techniques of applying ai to proof your code or refactor your code much quicker getting crisper better Better performance, better maintenance capabilities on the back of using AI as a coder, as a developer, mm. uh, or even as a tester uh, of code, because the AI can test your code before you you launch it. So I think this reskilling is on on the technical side. Let's put it that way. It's more around incorporating AI into that cycle of learning, and you've got loads of opportunities of that on the on the more human side of the of, of the spectrum. Yeah. You know. I don't know lawyer, finance, that's you know very disruptive. You've got something an algorithm that can type and write faster and quicker. If you're a marketing consultant, you know you you need to engage with the AI to make it more crisp, better better communication opportunities. Um, if you're a voiceover artist, you know you will struggle unless you bring <laughs> that into the fore, right or if you're a translator. Let's put it that way. So, depends on where you are on the skill set uh, of your career at, uh, you will need to reskill on AI and how that influences how you can improve the type of work that you bring. And you've got loads of opportunities of training. You've got online courses from yeah, or universities. You've got the online university, um, uh, even University of London, and many others, yeah. where you can get the primer. On how does it work, and then the more specifics about how can you apply it to your what you want to do now or in the future, and even get entrepreneurial. So would you want to do a startup thinking uh, on an incubator yeah. uh, with uh, with AI on an area that wasn't hasn't been explored yet? Um, you know uh, and the convergence of careers is very interesting because we got the STEM approach, right? And that wasn't there when I was studying. So that convergence of bio, technology, chemistry, engineering into one cycle—that's very, very interesting. If, if you want to go to back to uni uh, as a full-on undergrad, sure. or even a postgraduate degree, you've got loads of opportunities of the conver- because the the, the, the the marketplace is converging skills from a technical and human perspective. So I think there's loads of opportunities at the different stages of your career.
1: Thank you, Carlos.
3: So Carlos, in today's digital age, building a strong online presence using platforms such as, let's say, um, LinkedIn is crucial for career success. And uh, as being a career starter, I want to know why having such a digital footprint is so important in today's job market. And what advice would you give to someone like me for building my
2: personal brand and leveraging my network. Sure. So I was an, because of my age, I was an early adopter of LinkedIn. It was very useful because uh, as a as a client facing uh, executive, you, you know, you could basically understand who works where uh, and what's the org chart by by yeah. saying who's connected to who. It was very powerful for for mm. sales and that sort of thing. Now it has evolved more into a social network. And that, that thing about branding and marketing, self-marketing and all that, um, there's an element of uh, I don't know, balance about what do you want to convey through LinkedIn? Um, is it a more of, you know, the, the, the sort of the inspirational side <laughs> or, or, or is it about the technical side or, or is it about the conferences that you're attending, and how you use that to network uh, with other professionals in your field or other fields? Um, is it about sharing insight or just sharing news so you've got loads of opportunities yeah. to build a brand the connections though they need to be real otherwise it's just um, so if you're buying followers right that, that's not the case or if you, you have you know fake <laughs> fake profiles and all that uh, side the, the wrong side of LinkedIn but, but really um, I think it's important also to yeah. connect with recruiters at the stage of the career so Check who's recruiting uh, as a professional recruiting agency uh, and get, get in front of them, You know, send your CV, have the conversation. As a, as a, as a management consultant, you will get tapped on the shoulder uh, all the time by recruiters, but you start building a relationship. What's going on in the marketplace? What's the job, um, the job market like? And also then you start recruiting with them. So it's, a, it's an ongoing partnership you mm-hmm. can build online without having to make for coffee which <laughs> I had to do at the time. Uh, but um, but let's put it that way. You can build a strong online presence using LinkedIn. Um, you might want to check that you're not overselling uh, because that that puts you on the spot when you go to interviews. But you said on your LinkedIn profile that you're an expert in such and such field and then you you don't know, even know how to spell it. You just put that in your experience because you, you did a presentation in it once. So that that that, sure. that that can be dangerous, right? Um, so I would say, you know, tell what you do, tell what you are, yeah. tell tell the truth, right? That's much better. <laughs> and, and finally, I think the uh, the other bit about it is use it to connect with people, right? Rather than use it as a market employee. Uh, use it really keeping uh, that. For me, it helps me keep in touch with former colleagues from Leon Donkey's years that I've been working. So. It keeps me abreast of what they're doing, what's their leadership journey sometimes uh, going through. Are they relocating? You know, Global mobility is a big thing. N- nomadic digital uh, experiences as well are happening. And you can track that and and, um, and engage with them, saying, hey, how, how's that change going for you? Uh, so keeping that human side of it rather than just the branding is also very important. Um, and um, I think that, that that would be my take.
3: Thank you, Carlos, for that. It's all about, I guess, building your rapture and kind of showing that your network kind of equals your network. So and you kind of touched base on that as well.
1: Mm, what you said around connecting with recruiters is a very interesting point, Carlos. So um, I think now LinkedIn have an option where you can have a badge on your profile to indicate that you're open for work. And this is uh, something that recruiters will, will check in the first instance, profiles that have this badge. So that's a tip for for people. And if those who are to not let on to their employer that they're open for work, I think the settings allow for such as well. So if those didn't know, LinkedIn is is very great tool. And um, I've had a lot of experience as well through creating organic connections and building some online mentor, mentoring sort of relationships. So thank you for sharing that, Carlos. So for the people listening who are at the start of their career or developing their career or looking to change career, when they are doing their research on employers, what should we be looking for in terms of good practice when it comes to employer approaches to in-house training or um, different opportunities to to upskill or reskill? what would you say is some good practice that you've come across what should people be looking for when they they're looking for somewhere to work in this respect sure so
2: so i think the, the most important bit is to look at what the company the company is advocating pretty much what are their values what what, what really stands for is it nowadays we would look also at what's their environmental social Uh, and governance approach, the ESG agenda would be very important for me in terms of my career path. But also I think the other thing in terms of do they have their own internal university or do they have a a public Mm. university engagement Mm. that they advocate as well to ensure that you are Mm. coming in with what you bring but you can enhance your skill set through the corporate training uh, approach. Management consultancies usually have it. Other industries are big... Uh, you know, uh, SEC-listed companies, it would do uh, smaller, medium companies. They sometimes struggle to have a clear, uh, a clear, a clear yeah. comms, uh, based on on that. What do they do to upskill their, their staff? And they sometimes struggle to 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 build rapport with uh, potential uh, recruiters, uh, recruits on that, on that front. But but that's part of the maturity journey.
1: So, Carlos, you mentioned a point around. Um virtual universities and a lot of the employers i talk to nowadays actually are have already built a capability like this or are looking to to build a digital university and this idea of a virtual campus which is uh, forms as an in-house training program that employees have access to so it's really interesting so this is definitely somewhere something you should say people should it, it's really great if a firm has something like this and If I can offer my two cents here, um, if someone's in an interview, they shouldn't be afraid or hesitant to ask a firm, what is your, I'm somebody who is prioritises professional development, what sort of things would you have in place for me? So this is something that can be discussed, uh, I believe, and I'm sure you would agree, uh, uh, at an interview. Uh, So that's great. Um, So, guys, we are at the final portion of our show, which is a quick fire round. So, firstly, Carlos, what one thing do you enjoy doing to manage your well-being at work and maintain work-life balance? I like uh,
2: visualizing or visualization. I I need to find that space uh, of clear mindset, especially when I'm going into a tough meeting. I need to ensure that mm. uh, I'm I'm in the right place emotionally to to face that. Um, don't get the nerves, get the worst part of it. Um, I, I think that will be it.
1: Very interesting. And then Gehan, who or what inspires you in a professional sense, and why?
3: So I would say my peer network kind of inspires me in a professional sense. Uh, in terms of they've been around me, they are kind of uh, support system that helped me from the bottom up. So in terms of that, I would, if I were to pinpoint, I would say my colleagues, uh, my uncle or some other motivating factors that have kind of helped me build my foundation from the bottom up.
1: That's lovely to hear. Carlos, if there was one skill your team is currently lacking and would love to recruit for, what would it be? Somebody that says No um <laughs> i think i think
2: the important thing is all, you know to put a limit i think it, uh, it's important that people n- learn to to stand up and say no um that, and that's a very important skill set and not everyone has it very well developed so i'm not i'm joking half joking <laughs> because that, that's a very important skill say no
1: that is a very very salient point and it uh, feeds back into the earlier conversation that we had around resilience and boundaries uh, and then finally, for you both, can you make a prediction on what your career might look like anywhere between the next two to ten years? Just one thing that you predict happening. Firstly, I'll uh, ask Carlos.
2: Mm, tough one, um, because I have no... I mean, I'm a—I'm a very sea level compliance officer, so, mm. I, I I can think of a journey where I've, um, I can move on to more compliance things, but also more compliance in tech and ethics, and also about the responsibility of using AI properly in a business context, so the ethics in AI, mm. uh, I can see that emerging very quickly. The ESG yes. agenda is also very important uh, for a compliance officer, uh, so I can think myself moving more strongly into
3: those two domains.
1: And Gehan, at the other end of the spectrum, what do you visualize for your future job?
3: So in another 10 to 15 years, I would say saying that AI has not taken over, uh, (laughs) I would imagine myself (laughs) uh, in the field of investment banking, uh, typically getting specialized in that field, hopefully following a CFA qualification, and then uh, moving on to consultancy later on.
1: Thank you, Gahan. And I think that's a great point to end the show on. Hopefully 10 years from now, it won't just be robots speaking and we will still have humans doing podcasts. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you warmly both. And um, it's been a pleasure to have you on the Global Careers Call today.
3: Thank you very much, uh, Tanya and Carlos. It was a great pleasure to be here. Likewise. Thanks for
1: listening to part one of our deep dive on the topic of skills. Part two will be a more focused conversation with a different guest, sharing practical advice for reskillers and upskillers. It's coming soon, so stay tuned.
0: This was the Global Careers Calls podcast, brought to you by the University of London Careers Service. All links and resources are in the episode notes. This episode was hosted by Taniel Kazim, co-hosted by Gehan Wejasinge, edited by Abby Underwood and introduced by me, Melissa Drorian. Follow and subscribe to keep up to date with our upcoming episodes with more motivational stories from our diverse graduate cohorts, and please rate and leave a review if you found it useful. To listen to previous episodes and find further resources by our team, visit www.london.ac.uk forward slash careers.